0: Hey there, this episode of the Getting Smart Podcast is a rebroadcast of our recent town hall, Educating All Learners, where we were joined by Aaron Mote from Educating All Learners Alliance and Carla Phillips-Kravickis from Think Inclusion to discuss some of the core challenges and opportunities facing learners with disabilities. Together, we highlighted some of the most pressing topics circling the learning disabilities field and named exemplars who are responding well to these pressures and challenges. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: I'm here joined with Carla Phillips-Kravikas, CEO and founder of Think Inclusion, and Aaron Mote, executive director and co-founder of Innovate Innovate EDU, also part of ELA. Welcome. I'm gonna hand over to them in just a minute to do introduction, but first I wanna start off by acknowledging that although I'm associated with personalized learning and I see a couple of my uh, favorite people in that area on the call today as well in the audience but in competency-based that doesn't mean that I am also a special education teacher although so much of what we do is borrowed from really strong practices I wanted to highlight that um although I'll be coming into this conversation as an educator I will also be coming into this conversation as a mother I have a daughter with a complex um, genetic syndrome. It's a variant of ODO for those of you that might know what that means and I don't often get to talk about it so it's really exciting. It also has made the opportunity for me to get closer to both of the ladies joining me today. We were just touching base before you all got on that it is Mother's Day weekend that can mean a lot of things for a lot of people, but I would say that we all probably have our story to tell about being mothers within this work so excited to have this time right before the weekend too. So after talking uh, with both of them and others at different conferences since our, well, I I think we can say post-COVID, right? So our big opportunity with that is, where can we normalize and destigmatize levels of support? What can that look like as we move forward and how can we provide more support for learners? You often hear people talk about learning loss. And I think, I'm going to highlight a report from the National Center for Learning Disabilities in CLD. Uh, the reports Inclusive Innovative Assessments for Students with Learning Disabilities, where it talks about the impacts of remote, remote learning. They call it instructional loss, which I think a lot of people prefer, because if it was not taught, then how could it be lost? Maybe it was an instructional loss. People will also refer to it as a loss of opportunity, but we know from the testing results, that that was definitely an impact for all students but especially students who are already historically marginalized and today such as those with disabilities but we're not going to exclude all of those conversations i think it's important for us to talk also about the over-identification of people of color of kids in special education as well as the complex over and under identification in el learners you're also going to hear Some other terms that some of you may know and that's why you came to the call, but I also want to highlight what those are for those that might be new to it. A framework called universal design of learning Uh, it has an you know, an international following, this is a, a very well known. Learning design, but it's definitely got a lot more attention recently and people will often talk about is competency-based learning universal design is universal design there's a lot of overlap but intentionally i think what's important for us to note today is this is a switch of fixing students to match the curriculum or work for the curriculum and really what can we do to fix the curriculum and what we bring as far as learning opportunities to our learners so you'll hear udl referenced i wanted to highlight what that what that looks like it's it's an approach um, that really is about providing opportunities and in an inclusive environment for all learners, where all learners are seen as full students, not partially there, partially not. So the co-teaching model that'll also be talked about, um, it's definitely gotten a lot of attention. I know ASU has done some recent uh, reports about what that would look like in general education, how that could help us as an educational system moving forward. But what we often talk about with co-teaching is how does that show up for UDL? How does that show up? EL, you hear about it a lot, but I think it's important for us to highlight when you hear it today, we're talking about two certified teachers, if more it's team or collaborative teaching who co-plan, co-instruct and co-assess. And that's 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 very different than having other adults in the classroom as support. So what does that look like when it's a co-taught class? And that's a deeper commitment to that, that support and inclusion. And it's, in teach, it's a teaching experience that's in, designed intentionally for all students there. So not having to leave the classroom to get what you need. What does that look like to be a part of that? So you'll hear those talked about today, and I wanted you to be aware of that. We'll share a couple of resources in chat, but we'll share more resources after the call today so that you can dive into that if interested. So that's a frame for our conversation, but I wanna give time to to our uh, panelists here today so that you can hear from them. And we're gonna start with Educating All Learners Alliance, also known as ELA. I I, I might share that before today, I may have said that as an acronym, so I'm gonna help you guys on ELA, And it's an uncommon alliance and of over 130 organizations working to support diverse learners. And Erin Mote, could you please share more with us about ELA?
2: Just a little bit about the Educating All Learners Alliance. Educating All Learners Alliance started in March, 2020. Yep, that's right, right as COVID hit. Uh, A group of us, including NCLD, Digital Promise, understood, a number of others, the Center for Learner Equity were seeing something that was really, really challenging, which was um, as school districts were closing down, moving to remote learning, making decisions about what to do um, when school buildings could no longer be open, some school districts were contemplating actually not offering any educational services to any students because they could not figure out how to navigate the compliance challenges that they were imagining um, would exist in the regulatory framework. They were really struggling to think through access issues um, and universal design for learning. And and they were turning to many of our organizations, including myself um, and uh, my husband, Eric Tecker, who was running the charter school we founded in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Brooklyn Lab School, which is known for a model. Um, it's 10 years old. It's known for a model that serves students with disabilities um, and learners who are not traditionally well served by other systems exceptionally well. And we do that through a lot of things. Co-teaching is one way, um, but it's also a deep focus on personalization. But we were ready um, for COVID in some ways. Um, our school had been one-to-one we had had these flexible teaching models we had focused on the types of supports that students need acceleration skill building one-to-one high dosage tutoring all these were elements of the Brooklyn lab model and so because we had been in um networks of networks superintendents were calling us and asking us how do we do this how do we even write an iep virtually how do we comply with an iep So we got our friends together and we said, Hey, friends, uh, we have a problem if we don't answer these questions quickly and for the field, many students are going to miss out on just the ability to engage and learning and it wasn't perfect and and I think it's really important to draw the distinction here that 2020 and 2021 were emergency learning for many school systems. It was not blended learning. It was not personalized learning. It was not digital learning. It was emergency learning. We were doing the best that we could, but how could we design systems and structures and flexibilities to give folks the ability to really meet the moment? And so Educating All Learners started with 20 partners and then 30 partners and then 40 partners and civil rights organizations and, individual school districts and intermediary organizations and parent organizations and technology organizations and so for the first time we were really breaking the table around what a disabilities focused alliance might look like. Um, And we were saying actually everyone has something to bring to this table, everyone has something to offer and let's figure out that pathway to possible and now hundred and thirty partners later, really from equity and social justice organizations like National Urban League, which works at the national level to kindred communities, which works more at the state and local level to folks who were thinking about specifically supporting students with resources like eye to eye, to parents who took an outsized role in this work um, and continue to do so, to really thinking about what's the next generation of talent need to look like. And for me, this is really, really personal. So not only was it a huge challenge in the school that I founded, but it was also a huge challenge in my own home. My son, Robert is dyslexic um, and he was a pre-K four-year-old at that time in new york city public schools this is this like pivotal time in our learning trajectory in the scope and sequence of school when we you know really learn to read so that by third grade we can read you know we can read to learn and so robert was missing out on so many supports and structures and as a mom i had to figure something out as an educator, I had to figure something out to support him and to support the educators that were supporting him. Because also behind a mask, when you're pre-K four or five or six, phonetical understanding is a building block for, for the types of things we need. And we couldn't see lips, we couldn't hear the same way. And so we really had to stretch ourselves in new and innovative ways. And I always think about one of our partners at Miami Lighthouse, who you know, was trying to teach their early pre-K four, five and six uh, students who are visually impaired Braille. And do you know what they used? Muffin pans and tennis balls. That's what they used. They, They sent muffin pans and tennis balls home and they started teaching kids tactile Braille with muffin pans and tennis balls. And so what does that tell you? Educators are geniuses, and so are parents, and so are our young people, that really we can find ways to really support the learning of all students, and that's one of the inherent principles of universal design for learning and something that ELA is really trying to drive at, that every school can be inclusive, every school can be accessible, and that we need to shovel the ramp, not just shovel the stairs. I think the strength of ELA is really because that is an uncommon alliance that connected dots for so many folks at a time when they really needed new ideas, new connections, new resources. And we continue to do that through generating opportunities now for educators to get out there and to see school models that are working are doing something different, are serving all students equitably. We do this through research, resource sharing. So if you go to the ILO website, you're going to see a library of resources um, that really, really, really drive what's happening in the emerging um, field of special education, what's happening in the emerging field of science, of learning and development, and really connect many of these pieces and there we actually work with schools districts and organizations to develop tools where there are gaps and so just last year we released a really cool tool um set of tools for educators around intersectional identity and students with disabilities rebecca just talking a little bit about something that you were talking about the over indexing of some of our most marginalized population students of color as students with disabilities and so what happens when you have to uh, have conversations about the the multi sort of lens that you need to be serving students through, there's resources there for educators right away. We do a ton of webinars and podcasts. Don't worry, they're not all an hour. Sometimes we just do five minutes with where you can, you know, empty the dishwasher, um, or take a quick walk to the mailbox and listen to five minutes with some of the smartest people in education right now talking about what they're doing to really think through how to serve students differently. And then we have some really amazing initiatives um, that are led by our ELA team. We don't run a community of practice, we run a community of action where folks come together across uh, the United States and they design participatory projects um, to really think about what are the gaps in the field and how could we run together as organizations to support and build them. We're bringing educators together, principals, school teams across the country to really see and experience models and work towards a model change um, in their district that doesn't mean whole model redesign necessarily it might mean improving a certain practice or a staffing model. Um, in a school study tour and then finally we just closed the new champions fund application for this year, with a record number of applications like. 8X, 10X what we got last year. So that's super exciting. Um, And this is really to support innovators and champions of equity who are doing work in communities who might not traditionally um, have access to national philanthropy um, and, and funding. And we uh, select three new champions every year uh, and they get general operating dollars to really build the their organizations and support their work and get mentorship. And at ILA, we really use that our platform to trumpet and highlight their work. And so um, it's not just about, uh, are we adding seats to the table um, at ILA? It's really, are we breaking the table?
1: Thank you so much, Erin. Uh, I do love that you highlighted that quick response during the COVID when there was such a need out there and was so helpful um, and so appreciative of all that work that you put forward and that the way you phrase it today. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I wanna switch to an introduction also to Carla, please who is also known across the country for her policy work and continued policy work and what she's doing um, for the state of Arizona, but also how that impacts the rest of the country. Uh, Think inclusion. It's a partners with public and private sector leaders to build policy and investment agendas that purposely include students with disabilities. Hello, Carla. Can you tell us something? Sure.
3: Uh, I've been doing public policy for about almost 25 years. I hate saying that it really dates me, but I've had the honor and privilege of serving at the House of Representatives, governor's office, State Department, um, at the national level as well. And along that journey, I gave birth to two beautiful children like you. And um, I have a 15-year-old daughter with Down syndrome and an 18-year-old son who's been recently diagnosed with ADD. And I I started seeing all these issues I've been working on over all these years through a different lens, everything from standards, assessments, teacher certification, all of these big hairy policies through a different lens. And what bothers me the most is I remember all those years firmly believing that I believed in all kids. And I was thinking about all kids. I I did, I believed in my heart was in the right, but we weren't, we just weren't. So uh, with my husband's support, I finally broke up and started Think Inclusion. My mission is to make sure that students with disabilities are included in every policy program and initiative. And a new tagline I've kind of developed is inclusion, not exemption. Although I really think I'm going to steal pathways to possible. Just heads up, Aaron. <laughs> I think I'm
2: stealing that. Sure, um, you can way. take it. Yeah.
3: But, you know that that can you go back to that? That mission statement honestly took me a super long time to come up with. And it was because my goal is not to create more special programs, special pathways, special things. Sometimes we need them. I don't want to discount that. But my mission is to make sure that we're including students with disabilities in everything we're already doing. For example, just yesterday, Arizona's budget passed and in it, there was an expansion of dual enrollment. And with some support of some really great friends here in Arizona, we were able to get amended that students with disabilities, IEPs and 504s have to be honored. That may seem like common sense, but it has not been practiced nationally. That is not an Arizona unique. Uh, Issue. In fact, the first study done here in Arizona last fall showed that on average 24 and percent of high school students were taking dual enrollment courses, the participation rate for students with disabilities was so low it couldn't be reported. Meaning it was less than 2% or less than 10 kids. Those are the kinds of issues that I'm fighting for, because what it's also become so interesting to me nationally and locally is we spend a lot of time, and it's important time and money, like Aaron saying, helping teachers, helping schools, helping parents fix problems, fix schools, but we're not fixing the system, so I feel like we've developed a system of whack-a-mole, like we help that one, another one pops up, we help that one, especially like the attorneys and the advocates. Who trust me if I if I were Queen I would multiply them by 100 so definitely they're needed, but at some point, we have to tackle the systemic issues think dual enrollment is a super, super important example I think we put what 12 words. in a bill that we're hoping will be a monumental change and I wish we could say we were the first state uh, Minnesota Oregon and Illinois were ahead of us by putting this language in. But these are the kinds of issues that I'm working on, because too often what we would do is, okay, oh, 3 reading, oh, well, we'll exempt kids with IEPs. Again, legally, I get it. We're not going to, you know, have a kid with an IEP be retained, and that's a whole legal debate, but it sends a message to the field. Um, so Arizona, as you know, put that law into place many years ago. And then fast forward, I'm working at the Department of Ed and I get a call from a girlfriend of mine and she is irate. And I'm like, okay, calm down. Tell me what happened. And she got the form letter from the district that, of course, they thought was good news. You know, don't worry, your son's not going to be retained. You know, he has an IEP. And, and you know what her response to that? And it still wants me to say, she goes, why are they not required to teach my son to read? That was the message that she got. We thought we were doing the right thing by exempting them, and again, legally we are, I'm not making that argument, but it sent a message to the field and to parents that don't worry about those kids. As long as they have IEPs, it will happen, and um, right now in the background, I always I have on the Today Show, which is pretty much what I have on every day, all day in my house, and it's interesting uh, thinking about the destigmatizing support and normalizing support, something I've been thinking a lot about. And interestingly, they just featured a young man. I wrote it down because I haven't even had a chance to pull him up. Apparently, he started, I think it's an Instagram called I'm Just a Kid with an IEP. And he's a motivational speaker now who I'm already trying to figure out how we're going to get him here, Aaron, to talk. And he basically talks about his journey. He's a grown man now to tell them he he that he, why he was made to feel bad and why he felt so less and everything his mom did to support him in. And even so we we have to stop making kids feel bad. And, and post-COVID, there's really a broad recognition that a lot of kids need support. So I'm hoping that's one of the positive highlights that comes out of this is that we don't have to label kids. Even thinking about the over-representation, super important issue. I get it. You know, my students are, my children are both children of color, and it's super important. But you know, at the end of the day, we wouldn't be worried about over-identification if that identification got them reading, got them got get, achieved the outcomes that were intended. I mean, the reason nobody wants to be, exactly. identified, wants to, you know, that's, that's really why. Because if it were really, if, if getting in special ed and use notice, I use my air quotes, right? it's not a place meant that two or three years later, you'd see this dramatic improvement. Pa- parents would be clamoring for it. Right. But, but it's not, and they shouldn't need a label. Uh, to get accommodations and kind of go into the UDL you shouldn't need a label to get support and by the way I've never seen that definition that you had of UDL love that because it okay. is actually a very hard thing to explain to non-educators but I really liked the way you did that so
1: I can't cite that Carla let me let me just tell you where that came from I I now I'm worried that I probably should have pulled it from some website but yes I agree with you and I that is so I'm just going to pause right now because I hope people really under just heard what you said I said a lot, so I'm sorry. But there's so It'll many great pieces. But that over identification piece, we would not be concerned. Check ourselves if we associated that with receiving services that were helpful and outcomes. Not no, that's outcomes. Yeah, but, but improved but outcomes. Because so so we, the we reason why we are concerned services, is because we think they'll be. Meeting. Yes, the, we think they'll be discarded. Right? We think there will be not it, the urgency and the expectations, like you said, with retention piece will not be as relevant or as urgent. I just, that's so great, Carla. And we
2: send that message to kids too, when we send them out of the room and we say, you know, like you are other. Um, and, and I know what that feels like for a six-year-old, for a seven-year-old, for an eight-year-old, many, many folks on this call. Like I see it with Robert. I see the narrative that he creates for himself. If, if we don't, um, we don't really counter program that narrative. So, um, that really resonates with me, not just as an educator, Carla, but as a mom um, who's like really working on how does Robert become a self advocate? How does he demonstrate his resilience? You know, he just read 1.5 million words this year and he's dyslexic and it's this amazing accomplishment. And so, we had a millionaire
1: party because, you know, as you should. Carla, keep dropping those gems. I'm sorry. We just, I just had
3: forward if you don't mind.
1: So I just released a
3: a blog in my pathway series for getting smart, because as we know, pathways is the foundational work that a lot of us are engaged in nationally. And I've begun a series for getting smart on pathways for students with disabilities. And in my most recent piece, it just dropped last week. I'm sure Mace or someone will put it in the link for you. I basically argue that if we're going to talk about pathways we got to throw some myths out the door, we got to kind of reestablish a foundation. And so, these are the five foundational facts and this really girds everything I do. And one is to let people know that 14% of all students have a disability that varies by state, but that's generally an average it's a lot. So if if you can't have an equity lens and not include 14% of the student population, that's my thing. So out there, if you're talking about equity and not including students with disability, you're missing 14% of the kids that are historically marginalized. My second one is probably the biggest one that really affects policy. And most the best estimates are that only about 15% of students in special education or receiving special education services have a cognitive impairment forward to the next slide really quick and we'll bounce back, this is a pie chart representative of the US population of kids with disabilities, if you look at the three biggest chunks starting to so going counterclockwise. Those are specific learning disabilities like dyslexia speech language impairment other health impairment that's almost three fourths of the population of kids receiving disabilities that are invisible. They have invisible disabilities, what we might call high incidence disabilities. These are kids that are in every class, regardless if it's public, private, or charter or online. They're in every class, and often they are invisible for lots of reasons. But these are not the kids that we think of when we talk about special education or especially when we do policy. I'm going to say something tongue-in-cheek, and I hope you all will bear with me. But it's become so obvious to me that, one, unless your family is touched by it, you know very little about disability or special education, understandably so. But too often the images of of kids in special education are autism, Down syndrome, hearing impaired, visually impaired, and wheelchairs. And that's, and I'm going to caution all of us to think about this, think about the pictures that you use, too, in reports. When if you're writing a report, you need an image of a kid with a disability, which are the ones that we grab. So we reinforce this image, but as you can tell, those five things I just labeled represent less than 15% population. I always say my daughter's cute, but she's not representative of special education. I mean, my daughter has Down syndrome, she's, in look at that, it's only 6.8% intellectual disability. But what happens when we talk about disability, especially in the policy world? Oh, it's so expensive and it's so hard and they're complex learners. That's true of a lot of them, including my daughter. It's not true of most. We're not thinking about the young man who only needs one to two hours of speech therapy a week. We're not thinking of the kid who just needs some extra time on a test or you talk to read. Some of those minor accommodations, although life-changing for the kids that are receiving them, we're not thinking about them. Can you go back to the, the earlier slide? So yeah, at least 85% of students with disabilities can learn on grade level if they're getting the supports and services they need. That should just let that sink in for a second. And I can't tell you how many policymakers have told me that that literally changed everything they've ever thought. They've never thought about it that way. Three, students don't outgrow their disabilities. You may outgrow certain services and therapies, right? Hopefully you do in some cases, but you never not have dyslexia. You never not have ADD again, and that's super important, especially as we start thinking about transitioning to post school outcomes, higher education, and stuff. So I've had folks in higher education, because so of course they're not as well versed in these issues. Think, oh well, you know, but they they had an IEP in third grade, and I have to tell them they still have a disability. They just may need different. They may need different strategies or services. Four. The majority of students with disabilities spend most of the time in their regular and gen ed classrooms. Think about it. that's because it's the 85. It's because of the three quarters of the kids have invisible disabilities. But again, when we're crafting policy and by policy, I mean how much things cost, the expectations we're going to set, the goals, the outcomes. We're not thinking about that. We're all and it's mainly because of what we had in school. Right. We're thinking about and again, I hate these terms, but bear with me, those kids, that are in those classrooms down the hall. Those are the images that we have, but we're not realizing that most of these kids are in every classroom in every school right now. And then the fifth one, unfortunately, is a fact, but right, we're all working really hard to turn that around is that students with disabilities consistently experience the lowest outcomes that starts from preschool through to employment. So those are the five foundational facts. So as we're thinking about policy, about system design, around school design, around classroom design, around curriculum design, I believe these five foundational facts have to be a part of the conversation to think about that.
1: I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk about pathways too, because you did bring it up. And I think Erin will weigh in on this too. I also want to make note there's some great conversations happening in chat and great sharing. Please continue. We love that. That's a great part. There's a couple of you that I'm probably going to call on in the group. You probably know who they are. Um just to give you a, a heads up. I i, I want to highlight before you go into this that we are also in a time and some people say oh it's because people misuse ESSER funds. I, I don't I don't buy into that. I think we're also in a time where schools and en- enrollment's down there's conversations about schools closing. There's definitely conversations about riffing and the first Teachers and staff that often get talked about in these situations are instructional coaches. Some are special ed instructional coaches. Some are instructional coaches. Um, I think we all agree that that role is vital, but sometimes misunderstood and maybe not easily supported. With that understanding, I think as you talk about the pathways and idea requirements, I would love for us to also move into staffing and those challenges because, like you said, we know that this is a helpful uh, approach. You saw the graph. We know that this would be helpful for so many learners that we don't easily identify when we talk about this. So I hope we can move into that too. But I wanna give you a chance to talk about new pathways. And Erin, please feel free to also in, in weigh in on that. And then we'll move to some more conversations about staffing and some questions from the group. Thanks.
3: And I really wanna jump into the conversation. I'm trusting you guys to like capture these notes and send them to me, cause I can't pay attention, but I'm seeing good stuff. Uh, this slide right here is referencing to the second blog in the pathway series I did for Getting Smart. If you guys could put it in there because I don't want to spend too much time on it because I want to get a conversation going but the reason I call it pathways is because obviously it's the pathways project but in special ed lingo it's called transition plans unless you are familiar with IEPs which means you have a kid most policymakers don't know that a child with an IEP under federal law is required to have a transition plan beginning at the age 16. 23 states have lowered that to 14, to have lowered it to 12, Arizona has not yet, but we're I'm working on that. Meaning that their IEP now turns into a transition plan. What are their post-school outcomes and what are the services and supports that we're gonna put in place and courses to help them achieve that goal? It's really the, the precursor to ILPs and PLPs and stuff that we talk about in personalized learning. The transition plan IEP was like the grandfather of that. And the reason I have this chart here is because these are the four foundational items that Getting Smart has for their Pathways Project, correct, Rebecca? That these are like the four girding principles. These are exactly, you could almost take them verbatim out of federal law. And you can see the chart in the blog. And that's why I tease this out is because, again, we think we're talking about something new. This is not new. As Rebecca and I always like to talk about personalized learning is special education done well and done right for all kids. So if we want to be talking about how to make ILPs, ECAPS, whatever we're going to call them in your state, how to make them work, let's go back and learn lessons of what has gone right and what has gone wrong with transition plans. If we want to talk about all of this work, about UDL, let's talk to the people who've been trying to do it for 40 to 50 years. So. That is why this chart is here, because you can make a direct correlation to idea, and what is required for students with disabilities notice I did not say what is happening for students disabilities; it's what's required for them.
4: I did notice
1: Karen,
2: <laughs> did you want to add any more to that. Look at this, and I think about this is what every parent wants for their child, and I would argue that this is probably what every what every student wants for their journey um through life not just in school systems but in life that we really do we are intentional Well, we are equitable we curate our own learning experiences more and more and that we we find that purpose that really guides us um you know and the other thing i will say about special education and sort of a hearkening back is you know idea was like the original parents rights movement that (laughs) IDEA and federal law and the inst- and sort of like the institutionalization of protections for students with disabilities was the original parents' rights movement. It's the most successful parents' rights movement there ever has been. And so I just, in this time where I see a lot of folks saying, well, you know, like let's pay attention to parents or let's pay attention to families or parents matter, parents have always mattered. Um. And, and parents want the types of pathways that Carla talks about, the types of intentionality we're talking about today in instructional design, the types of intentionality I think we'll talk about in how teachers and educators serve young people and engage families. But when you said like, this is like a hearkening back to IDEA, I wanted to remind our so many folks on this call that like also, this conversation about parents being in the mix, parents having a voice also can be the best of the special education movement too. Wonderful.
3: I have to give you a sneak peek. I mean, I'm doing a series of interviews of schools that are implementing personalized competency-based learning, and there's a quote, there'll be in a paper coming up, and I'm gonna give you a sneak peek because I thought it was amazing. I'm like gonna tattoo it on my forehead. And he basically said special education was a recognition 40 to 50 years ago. That the one size fits all model doesn't work for some kids. There we go. The personalized learning is a recognition that the one size fits all model doesn't work for anybody. Yeah, that's right. And I thought that was just
1: simple okay. and but yeah, wonderful. Thank you. I We've talked about personalized learning enough that I would like to invite my friend, Kathleen McClaskey into this conversation. You've been putting some great comments in chat. Kathleen, anything you wanna add to the conversation about universal design for learning and personalized learning in this context? Love to hear from you, welcome.
4: So um, I've been a practitioner of UDL since 1999, and it's been in my head and in my DNA now for uh, well over 20 years. And um, what I saw about a decade ago around personalized learning is that we really need to empower the learner with the, the knowledge about how they learn both their strengths and challenges and to be able to talk about those things. Because what happens in the classroom and every day in every school is kids are always comparing each other and they do a lot of negative self-talk. That does the most damage to children in the long-term, okay? So what I've come up with is I've developed a learner profile called the Empower the Learner Profile, using the UDL lens, but for the learner to use it, to share those strengths and challenges and to be able to talk about it. Well, that was actually in the first publication, but is expanded in the second publication called How to Personalize Learning, Chapter Four. And I've had educators around the country use this, and this is a game changer for kids with disabilities. Why? Because now they can share and talk about who they are and how they learn, both strengths and challenges, they can learn to self advocate in the classroom with teachers, they can be okay with the way they learn. And now they can express those things and talk about them. Because always remember this, the stories that we tell ourselves is what we believe about ourselves. And we want kids to tell good stories about themselves. Right. But we want them be able to talk about it so they can take action because unless you can talk about something, you can't take action. We want to empower them with skills and practices for lifelong learning. I think that we need to switch this whole piece. Support is always wonderful, right? But unless we're giving kids the skills and the learning practices to move forward, we're basically cheating them. That's all.
1: thank you so much. Thank you for joining the call, thank you for letting me just grab you and pull you in. I don't know if any of you are aware of the Nevada portrait work that's happening, but there is an intentional state lift there, and I know Carla was a part of the original pieces and policy of that, where the groups that are organizing that are intentionally making their portrait of a graduate about questions not pre-designing the traits but really questions like how does this matter to you and they're really doing it in thoughtful ways and questions that allow and encourage and probably expect learners to be able to lean into this and design their own path which is somewhat we've been talking about today so just that's another one we can look into later that came to mind we've got some other um, conversation items that have come up in chat but i know from private chats that people are interested in the staffing challenge do you have anything you want to weigh in on with this that there's, um, we know that those are great supports. We know that having um, co teaching really is an inclusive um, model. Anything that you guys could add to that conversation um, around co teaching and staffing and some challenges that people are facing?
2: There's another alliance at Innovate EDU that we run called the Pathways Alliance. Um... It's about educator preparation and um, really thinks about how we rethink the role of educator preparation and therefore rethink the role of what the educator does. And notice how I'm intentionally using the word educator here, not teacher, because Rebecca instructional coaches are educators and paraprofessionals are educators and high dosage tutors or small group instructors might be educators. And increasingly, I think we're seeing great models of Collaborative teaching of team teaching of two teachers in a classroom, um, if possible, even for select periods we're seeing some really cool stuff in rural communities, where we have virtual instruction alongside in person instruction so a subject matter expert, maybe in an AP chemistry. Or AP physics class teaching alongside maybe a, a virtually coming in and, and teaching alongside a less experienced teacher um, to really create those scaffolds and supports. Um, I'm really excited about the movement that we're seeing right now to really reimagine the role of the educator. Uh, I think we've talked a lot about Reimagining the role of a young person as advocate um, and doing it in a way from a positive, strength based approach. But I think um, some of the things that have happened, and maybe you want to call them the silver lining of a national teacher shortage or the silver lining of, of COVID, are really thinking about the roles of educators differently. So whether that's the 80 schools that are working with Arizona State on next educator workforce or the work that Baltimore City is doing uh, to really think about what's the composition of a pipeline of diverse teachers, um, all the way from high school up. Uh, So is the Center for Black Educator Development doing that work, thinking from high school up. And The thing I'm actually really excited about um, in the special education area in particular, um, are teacher apprenticeships. So the Pathways Alliance alongside the U.S. Department of Labor and the U.S. Department of Education is going to follow up on a commitment that uh, the First Lady, Joe Biden, made last year in August. We've written the National Guidelines for Teacher Apprenticeships. They're going to be released within the next coming weeks. I'm very excited about it because the models that are coming out of those teacher apprenticeship pathways um, include pathways for special education. There's a really exciting one in Ball State uh, that's developed that's specifically targeted at building their special education teaching pipeline. It reaches all the way back into the high school model, works with high schoolers who are thinking about the teaching profession, partners with the Boys and Girls Club to put them in after school tutoring mentoring roles, At the same time does the dual enrollment that Carla's talking about with Ball State gets them earning those college credits, they're graduating in three years from Ball State, not just as certified teachers, but as certified special educators. Um, And that's the thing that we really need to be thinking about is how do we think about what folks coming into the pipeline and then what's the work experience that they're having in the classroom and how do we really think about how that uh, staffing model could potentially also help us deal with some of the de If you're a young person who has to go for specials and notice my air quotes, um, and leave the classroom you know, for two or three hours a day, you know it, your peers know it, and there's a conversation that's happening about why that's happening. And we have to keep kids in classrooms with the right scaffolds in order to really do what we know from the science of learning and development we got to provide them special supports where they need it but again that's a really narrow part of the pie chart as carla talked about and so if we don't reimagine our educator model um we're not reimagining how to serve that whole pie chart
3: well as a i, I do believe maroon and gold so and i love the work <laughs> at, her, you know, at, the, at the asu and i've been watching it for a very long time I'm a big supporter One of the things Carol talks about a lot is reimagining that role again. We can do it, but we're not going to scale it until we change the policy. That's right. Our programs are are foundational in the State Board of Education rules, which we didn't mention. I actually am a member of here in Arizona. So I'm thinking a lot about this. Erin is I'm gonna throw a big, hairy, audacious idea. Go
2: bring it to me. We'll we'll make an alliance. I've been
3: talking a lot for many years about the wall. The wall between Gen Ed and SPED—we all know it. We all see it. See, I see lots of head shaking even on the screens. It's at the State Department level. It's at the district yep. level. It's at the school level. It's in the classroom level. There's a wall for lots of reasons, and I my new theory is that we're building the foundation for that wall in the teacher prep programs. Because mm. In theory, in theory, and I know every school, every state's a little different, so bear with me. But in theory, one of the first decisions. A student has to make when they've decided to go into the College of Education is which students do they want to teach that's right. And then we wonder we're shocked 10 years later when they say oh well, I don't teach those kids we made them make that choice, we made them make that choice. So I mean we if we're if we're going to tear down that wall it's got to be at that foundational level. Now, what I have learned over the years from great educators like Rebecca, I mean, I'm not, I'm a policy wonk, self proclaimed policy wonk, is that the, the teaching strategies that work for kids with disabilities work for everyone. It's good teaching. So then, why do we have separate tracks? Why can we not do a side by side of the competencies, the standards, whatever you want to call them in your state, in state board rule, and what we're mandating the teacher prep programs to do? ed and Sped and I'm i would bet I haven't done it yet, but I would bet 75 to 85 percent of them apply to both. There's probably that 15 to 20 percent, most of which are more law and paperwork related.
2: Things, That's right, right. That's now. right.
3: But thinking about Seal's model,
2: mm-hmm.
3: there are people in the world who like me. I'm an I'm an administrator. I like paperwork. I would like to I I could do that job. Versus the people who do teaching, but we're requiring, again, thinking about Carol, that we're requiring teachers to do be all things and do all things. We're doing the same thing to special education instructors. We're taking people who want to be in the classroom working with kids with disabilities and helping them, and then we're making them spend time on paperwork that they don't like and they're not good at. Where we have people out there who love doing that but don't want to be in the classroom. All of that could be an endorsement. That could be like a badge, a credential, an endorsement that people get. I know for a fact, because I just found a woman here in a really big school district here in Phoenix. Her whole job is basically doing the IEPs for the kids in the private schools in the district under federal. That's her whole job. That's perfect. But why are we making all the special education teachers do that as well? So that's my big I think answer. it's a great Let's point. Let's identify the things that we want all because we want all teachers to be able to meet the needs of all kids in the classroom. right? let's let's have one certificate that empowers and then you can have a, a, you know, design the apprenticeships that go along with it and the teaching the all that stuff to go along with it. I'm not saying it's just what they would learn in mm-hmm. classroom, but that that teacher is now prepared to teach it any learner. Yeah. And then we can offer some again some credentials or some other things on the side of the people who are the specialists in the laws and the IEPs and some of the other things that they might need. And you again, you can still get a specialty in visual impairment for. Mm. Can get a specialty. I'm not saying we to get rid of them, but let's identify the core that every teacher needs rather than making them choose a pathway. Love it. And I
2: That's think it's important to look at. Yeah, I think it's important to look at models like Relay has done, where they they do Gen Ed and Sped as as the same package. I think some of the more Uh, that some, some other, I would say, educator prep programs who are doing some different types of restructuring, they have a barrier, though, from a policy perspective around what's required on the licensure side of the house. So something that's totally outside their control, that's driving this, I think, this unnatural division and this sort of like, challenge in terms of the skills masteries and competencies Carla that you're talking about around what's the administrative function versus what's the teaching function that is is really driven by licensure requirements at the state and and i'm going to say something here that's going to be like really love all these
1: drops right at the end Let's here go. We
2: go. <laughs> this is i think among the things that ai could actually help us with speed some things along I'm not saying teachers don't have to, you know, write IEPs and humans aren't in the loop, but prompts for IEPs that are positive framing. Think about the ways that we mm-hmm. could use generative AI to mm-hmm. speed up the process of writing, you know, pieces of an IEP or doing some of that administrative work. I'm really excited about the AI center with the National Science Foundation and IES, the Institute for Education Sciences, at the University of Buffalo that's specifically focused on students with disabilities, because I think it is a goldmine of some of the pieces that Carla's talking about, from Mm -hmm. how do we universally screen all kids for dyslexia, Mm -hmm. and then have a human in a loop to follow up on the kids who fail a universal screener to how do we begin thinking about how we lessen that administrative burden through generative AI. Mm -hmm.
0: Thanks so much.